Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. For many of us, food is at the center of our memories of childhood and family. When my grandmother passed away, my sister and I were delighted to find her handwritten recipe cards and cookbooks, and we each set out to find our favorite recipes to recreate for our own families to share that connection and those memories with our own kids. My sister in particular has spent a lot of time trying to recreate grandma's butterscotch pie, but unfortunately neither of us has been able to get it quite right. The kids and grandkids of today's guest, Hetty McKinnon, will definitely not have that problem because Hetty has beautifully captured her family meals in her latest book, aptly titled Family. Hetty draws on her own childhood growing up in a Chinese family in Australia and on the many other food cultures she experienced in Sydney when creating meals for her own family. She now lives in Brooklyn, where she writes about food and publishes her biannual journal, Peddler. This was her second visit to the Booklarder Kitchen, and she's in conversation with Seattle writer and photographer Aaron Goyaga. Here's Hetty McKinnon and family. I'm going to be your salesperson. Oh, okay. She also has her first book, Community, which she self-published, yeah. sold 100,000 copies in Australia, and then was picked up by a publisher, and it's going to be five years old, and it's going to be re-released. It'll be re-released, but it's actually never been released anywhere outside of Australia. <laughs> so so it will only be Well, I don't know. Released. Maybe. Maybe I'll bring it to America myself. I get emails about it every day from people wanting that book. It's that, it, the, that book is about the story of my business that I had in Sydney when I delivered salads on a bike. So... It was around before there were any salad books. It's a vegetarian salad book. So Neighbourhood, my first book released in the US, was kind of like the follow-up to that. And it was like the transition from Sydney to New York. Mm-hmm. And I'm still there. But, yeah, community will come out again. And people in Australia actually don't even know this. <laughs> it hasn't even been announced, but uh, it will, will be yeah. soon. So it's going to have, like, 20 new recipes and stories in there. But 100,000 copies? It's a lot in a very, of in a very small country. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. So congratulations. Thank you. And congratulations on this one. I don't know if everybody has seen all of her books, but it's like a trilogy. Yeah. Neighborhood, community, and family. It's getting smaller. Yeah, and I'm like, what is going to be next? Like, where do you go from there? I think it's going to be something really different. <laughs> anyway, but let's start yeah. with this one. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what family was to you, what it looked like when you were growing up? In Sydney. Okay, so I grew up in a Cantonese household. My parents were immigrants from the south of China. We lived in the suburbs of Sydney, and my mum doesn't speak English. She still doesn't speak English. She's lived in Australia for 50 years now. She was a homemaker. She didn't really have the opportunity to finish her schooling, so she, I think she finished school in China at 14, immigrated to Australia in her early 20s, got married. It was an arranged marriage. And it was a very traditional household. So my dad worked two jobs. My mum just cooked all day. I don't really remember her doing that much other than cooking, to be honest. And when I was growing up, I loved her food, but I wasn't... Like, now I revere the food. You know, like, I, I, I'm inspired by it every day. It's, it's, the influence is a current that runs through everything that I do in food now. But 
at the time I was almost like kind of annoyed by the amount of food there was. Like she was always asking at breakfast time, she'd say, what do you want for dinner? And, you know, so it was like her passion and it really drove her every day. I always just remember her like crouched in the kitchen, like she made everything from scratch. We had jars of fermenting eggs and ginger and, you know, she fermented everything. This was before fermenting was fashionable because that's just the way they they lived in China. They would preserve everything so there was no wastage. You know, she would have hanging meats out on the, the balcony, hanging like salted duck. And What did the neighbors think? I wonder. Yeah, I mean, the people who lived next door were Chinese, but I think she kind of built a structure so it wasn't yeah. publicly seen. <laughs> Yeah, so like food was just a huge part of my childhood without me really realizing that it was. Did you cook with her? No, I didn't start cooking with my mum till I was probably in my teens. And I remember when I was in my teens, when I started being interested in what she was doing, I asked her, I was like, who taught you to cook? And she said, well, I used to just stand in a corner and watch. And then through talking with a lot of people from Asian cultures, I've discovered that that is the way a lot of people of her generation learned to cook was by through observation and not really through actual getting involved. And I have to say, like, I'm kind of doing the same thing with my kids accidentally. I don't really cook with my kids either, but they're around food all the time. That's how I grew up too. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the table like? So it was a round table. It was always a round table growing up. Now my mum has this big rectangular table because I think she's trying to be modern. But growing up, it was always it was a big lounge room and there was a round table on one side and there was a TV. I think it's a very Asian thing to have the TV on while you eat. We would never do that now. <laughs> but there was always like some soundtrack of something like the news or something going on. It was like such a consistent, it was the one constancy really in our lives. We ate at five o'clock every day. My dad worked at the market, so he got up very early. So we had really like the sun would be kind of this height and we would be eating dinner and it would be always Cantonese set up with like rice and then five or six different dishes in the middle of the table. Every night? Every night. Wow. That's unfathomable to us now. I struggle to come up with one, one dish. But, you know, there was like, it was like a repertoire. You know, there'd always be some green and stir fry. And one of my favourite things, which is quite funny since I'm vegetarian, is um, she used to make this thing called a pork cake. So it was like a steamed, almost like a meatloaf, I guess. But it was steamed and then she would have like salted egg yolks in there. And wow. she would have four different variations of it. So some was with fermented radish, some with black bean sauce, one that was more of a plain one. So there was a lot of food every night. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So was it quiet? Was no, it, it was conversational? Like, it was fast. I describe it as fast and furious. Like I've got two siblings, so there's three of us in the family. We would set, would help set the table and we would sit and literally maybe finish eating in five to ten minutes and she would, my mum would come to the table. Like she would be always finishing something up in the kitchen. So she would come, sit down and she would just not eat. Like she'd be, she'd get like a bowl of rice. And so she made soup every night. So it's medicinal in Chinese culture. So we always started with soup and we all hated the soup because it was, it was like bone broth, broth, much cheaper (laughs) than it is today. 
and she would get the broth and she would just tip it into her rice and then she might add like a piece of meat or some greens or something and that would be her dinner. Yeah. Whereas we like kind of scoffed everything she'd made in five minutes. So that was kind of her, I guess, you know, when you cook a lot, you're often not hungry. So I think maybe that was a symptom of, you know, just being in the kitchen all day. Yeah. And you know, when I cook, I just taste things all day, so yeah. I'm often not hungry either. Yeah, it's the same for me. There would be some and, very loud conversing okay. and then it would be over. Yeah. And then we'd always have to clear the table. We'd always have to take our plates into the And the did kitchen. she do dishes or you did dishes? When I was older, we took turns. Yeah. Probably more, more so than my own children now. Yeah. What yeah. does your cooking table look like now? You know, to be honest, it's looking more and more like that. I mean, I have a rectangular table. I kind of want a round table. I feel like round tables are easier to share food. Our family table at home has kind of changed since I wrote this book. We used to kind of eat our own meals, like, you know, your own plate. And we still do that sometimes. But more and more now, I try and eat family style. So no, it doesn't really matter what it is. Like, so for example, last night, I made like a sag paneer and then I had rice and then I made some cauliflower because I was trying to use up what was in my fridge before I left, come here. And so I made like that and there was some naan bread. So there was four dishes and that instead of, in the old days, I probably would have got a bowl and put the rice in and then put all the different elements in and then served it to my kids. But now I just put everything in the middle of the table and even the rice and they kind of help themselves to a bit of everything. And I've just found for, for us it is making everyone be a lot more adventurous in what they eat. So it's like a real, mm-hmm. it's really changed the way we eat as a family. Like I eat with my children every day now. When I didn't, when they were younger, I would, you know, wait for my husband to come home mm-hmm. from work or whatever. But now we all, I always eat with them. So at the very least, it's always the four of us. We almost always eat communal. Like yeah. my kids actually eat salad. And so... When, Why do you say, like, my kids actually eat that? Because I kind of, like, a lot of people ask me, how do okay. you make your kids eat vegetables? Okay. And, I mean, it's been hard work, but they're kind of older now and their palates are a little bit more sophisticated, I guess, and it's through years of, like, always presenting things to them even though they didn't always eat it. Mm-hmm. So salads are, like, I think a really excellent meal for kids because you can add so many different elements and... You know, one element might be something they don't particularly like, but you can add an element that they do like. So Mm -hmm. this book has the salads in here are really developed for like all palates. It's not really like salads for children, but it's just a much more even palette you know like comfort like I always try and add something comforting to the top Mm -hmm. of the salad so there's could be like an egg or some avocado or a fleck of cheese or something Mm -hmm. like that just to make it feel a little bit less threatening. Mm-hmm. Do you ever cook Cantonese food or any I sort of like do. more traditional things? I do. So through this book and through Peddler, particularly the first edition, which was the Chinatown edition, I'm getting more of those recipes. So, so in this one, there's a very traditional Cantonese dish in there, which is a very strange dish in general. It's like a tomato and egg. It's a homestyle dish. You never really find it in restaurants. But if you meet any Cantonese person, they almost always have memories of this dish. It's a very unusual dish because there's not really many tomatoes in Cantonese mm-hmm. cooking or in Chinese cooking, really. But this is like a tomato stew. So there's that side and then you scramble an egg and then you kind of stir the stew through the egg. 
It's very strange. My mum's version in this book that I've put in there is a little bit different because she makes it like an egg drop. So she actually drops mm. the egg into the tomato stew. So that's in there. I do make Chinese food every now and then. I don't make it all the time. Is it just because it's more labor intensive? We eat more rice now than we used to. Because I'm vegetarian, I'm always trying to vegetarianize things that my mum used to make. So she would do like greens and she would stir fry it with like dried salted fish. So I use like fermented bean curd mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think we do eat a lot of um, Cantonese inspired food, but I like to try so many different flavors. So mm -hmm. I don't really like to eat the same thing every yeah. night. One thing I like about you is that you're not very precious about food. I mean, you yeah. are because you care about it and you definitely come from a heritage of people that have been doing the same thing technique wise yeah. for a long time but you'll buy tomatoes at the supermarket if you need yeah. to and I've become less precious about it I mean I try to eat seasonally but it's not always practical and it can be really expensive to shop I mean the, I don't know about here but the New York markets are like so expensive so I try and usually go and buy so the fresh things like the leaves there's certain stores that I love all these beautiful like pea shoots and all those I will always buy at the market But to be honest, like practical, everyday cooking for your family, whether it's children or just your partner or whatever. I mean, I, I don't have the headspace to actually soak my beans two days before yeah. and do all the things that you actually need to be prepared. So yeah. you have to be practical. And I think in everyday life, that's the most yeah. important thing. So I have like a whole section about what yeah. to do with a can of beans. I mean, it's great to cook yeah. your beans if you can yeah. prepare yourself, but my kids like beans and beans are kind of important in our household now because they, I was saying to you today, they don't yeah. eat meat at home. I don't cook meat at home anymore. So I have to be practical and I think people kind of appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And also when I asked on Instagram, if people had questions for Hetty, the number one question was, <laughs> Does she use canned chickpeas or does she soak her chickpeas? It's funny because the whole beans thing is a very big issue. Yeah. When I was when Apparently. With, with neighborhood, when I was in Australia, there was this big discussion about how to cook beans. So my mum uses this kind of strange method where she doesn't soak the beans, but she does this quick boil. So she so for example, you take your chickpeas, dry chickpeas, you put them in water and boil it quickly for about five minutes, turn off the heat and let the beans sit in that water mm. for about half an hour while it's still hot. Then you tip the water out, refresh the water, and then it cooks in about half the time. Oh, wow. There is no science to my understanding of this other than the fact this is the way she taught me to cook chickpeas mm. from scratch. But since then, I've seen a lot of people write about, it has a name, I don't remember what mm. the name is, but it's some like an old tribal cooking method, I think. Mm. But and I noticed you did that with cashews. Yes. For your cashew cream. I use boiling water. Which I'm obsessed with making <laughs> cashew cream all the time. <laughs> and you use boiling water. Mm. And I always soak mine overnight. You are about getting food on the table yes. and getting people around the table. Yeah. And this book, I think more than the other books, is really about that. I really did try and... I'm hoping that you will agree, but all the ingredients in this are really things that you should be able to find from your supermarket. It's, um, you know, everyday ingredients used in interesting ways. So that's kind of the, the basis of how I approach this. 
I've tried to draw back on ingredients a little bit, but I do use a lot of spices. So hopefully once you buy a jar of spice, you've got that and you can keep using it. <laughs> I'm looking for my, I'm obsessed with this recipe. Which one is it? The sweet potato sweet noodles. Potato noodles. The japchai. Looks so good. Also, maybe we should give a shout out to Louisa. Yes. Brimble, who photographed Louisa. the book. Yeah, so Louise has photographed all my books. She's actually nominated for a James Beard. Not for my book. Um, Next for, year for your book. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah, they're Louise so beautiful. Is, yeah, she, uh, she comes, she flies over to shoot my books. I've used the same team on all my books, all girls. When we shot the first book, we weren't really, like none of us were really who we are now. So that, I think that's a really interesting. Louisa was shooting me for like an online publication but she was just starting out as a photographer I was not writing books I had a salad business and I'd never at that point I was I had written a manuscript because people had asked me to write a manuscript like my customers but I didn't know how to write recipes I taught myself to write recipes and then on the first day of the shoot this girl comes girl called Erica. I didn't know her. I'd never met her before. Louisa said, oh, some girl reached out to me on Instagram. She's going to come. And I was like, okay. It was all at my That's house. So and we had no props. <laughs> we are just using all the plates were my own plates. This girl, Erica, ended up styling the entire book. So she came for the entire shoot. And then she's styled all three books now. So, yeah, so it's kind of a nice – we've really grown up together through yeah. the books. So neighbourhood and family include your friends or yeah. – people in your life that mm -hmm. have become like yeah. family and you yeah. always have their recipes. And I was curious to see what you've learned about family through observing or listening to other people. It's really interesting because the families that are in the books are usually very different to my families. Like every family is different. Every family I say is a little bit crazy. When I ask people for their stories, I don't really give them that much information. So I basically say... What's a cherished recipe? The stories that they give me are completely their own. The pattern with the stories is they're all very consistent. And no matter what culture they're from or where they grew up, it always comes back to how important a particular dish was to their family or how, like, for example, Erin Yang, who's in here, she's an artist in New York, and her story always makes me cry. It's about how her grandmother welcomed her husband into their family through just the food like she was just lavishing food on him and that's something I actually can relate to but that was like that's it's such a touching story or Zeki who's another New Yorker she's a designer and she's lived in New York for 20 years but her mum lives in Hong Kong and she actually works with her mum and she was telling a story about, I think she says that the TV was on in their house too, um, but she's talking about how special she felt when her mum asked her to help her clean out the pig's lungs <laughs> and it was like such a precious memory to her because she felt like she was being kind of like, you know, kids always want to be elevated mm -hmm. to the next level and she felt like she was being accepted by her mum when she was asked to take on that task. So I think the, the common theme is the memories, no matter how small, are things that stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. Most of my memories from youth, from my childhood, are actually around food. Mm -hmm. And like sometimes the smells, like the aromas, are very, very strong for me. Like say ginger, whenever I smell ginger, I think of my mother's hands. Her hands mm. always smelt like ginger. Mm. Or if I hear like an exhaust, you know, like an overhead, like 
like this type hood, of thing. Yeah. The hood, that always reminds me of my mum's house because it was always on. Mm. When that went on, we knew dinner was imminent. Mm. So, yeah, I think the family stories, those stories are really important. Like I see those as the real hearts of this book in particular because it shows what I'm trying to illustrate is the importance of food in families but also showing that doesn't really matter where you come from in the world or your situation, mm. people are, they're all the same. You know, yeah. like that love and how special food is to families, doesn't matter where you grew up, what social status, it's just always, it's always there. So mm -hmm. it's really special. The stories are amazing. Yeah, it is kind of the thread through. Yeah, there's a tart in there by my friend Maria mm. and there's a video of us talking about the tart on my IGTV but it was her mother's tart. Her mum, actually both her parents passed away. So it's her mum's pear tart and it was the tart that her mum was a teacher and so she'd always bring this tart to all her school meetings and she's Portuguese. I met Maria when I first moved to New York and she's told me about this tart constantly for five years and I knew I wanted to feature it somewhere. Maria doesn't eat butter, so she'd never tasted her mum's tart, like never. Mm. She would help her mum make it so it's her brightest memory of her mum is going to the market in Portugal, picking the tart or the apples. They would vary depending on the season and going home making it, but she'd never eaten it. So during the shoot for family was the first time wow. she'd ever eaten it. So she'd never actually wow. eaten her mum's version. Those photos are yeah. like so special. Yeah, it's kind of a sad, a beautiful. Sad, yeah. but kind of touching. Yeah. Yeah. This, well, this is Peddler. This is, you're the first people to see this, actually. <laughs> this is my advanced copy. And She's, Book Order carries Peddler. Yes. Can you tell them? I'm not sure if people know about Peddler. So Peddler is something I started in 2017. It's a multicultural food journal. It's recipe-driven, so it's full of recipes. But the recipes kind of act like stories. And the way I kind of see it, it's kind of the in-between moments of food. So, so I have contributors, and when people come to me with a recipe... I don't really care how weird it is or how I don't really think, oh, no one's going to know what that is. I just kind of, if I like the idea, we just go for it. So it's about preserving memories in essence. It's about preserving small moments and memories and traditions and rituals that people grew up with all around food. So each edition is, is themed. So the first edition was Chinatown. And I feel like that's an unfinished issue to be honest you have to I, go back because I want to go <laughs> I want to do it number two and then childhood was the second one and rice was the third one and these are actually all sold out you cannot get them anymore but book ladder have a few back issues I have some issues to myself but they're kind of basically archival issues now they will not be reprinted they are 1,000 copies only and they're spread throughout the world so I always say to people, if you want it, you just have to get it. We sold some back copies in New York recently and it was a rush. Wow. We sold out before anyone wow. else because people are, again, like with a lot of my self-published projects, I don't push them that hard. Like I really want people to come to them on their own. I think we were mm -hmm. talking about this today, mm -hmm. like friends telling them about. So I really, and it's something to be preserved because it's about preservation anyway. So mm -hmm. this grandma issue is, um, it's very, very special. It features um, grandmothers from throughout the world and it has like a special audio 
story, which is in the middle. It's the first time we've ever done this. And it's grandmas of New York and we just found grandmas on the street and interviewed them about their signature dish. And it was so hard to find grandmothers who would talk to us. So this is one thing we found. It was there is no problem finding younger people to speak to us. Like people would come and offer us stories and we weren't even asking. But we approached grandmothers and most of them were like, I don't have an interesting story. Of course that's not true, but what I did notice was that it's almost a generational Thing, we know. overshare now. And yeah, then they didn't we share overshare anything. now, whereas like from <laughs> yeah. generations before, it was just, there was more humility, I guess, yeah. in cooking. It was just, oh, that's like a, that's few, of, a few of the, um, the people in this section. And actually, if you go onto the website, you can actually hear them talking. So it's an audio. You can actually hear their voices. And it's usually, they said, oh, it's just chicken. It's just my, my, my signature dish is just chicken. It's nothing special but my grandkids like it or something like that. Yeah. And to me, that's really special. Like, why not? Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's affected someone's life. Your crumb chicken is, has been important to someone. It can be, I always say, it doesn't really matter what's on the plate. It's really more mm-hmm. the act of sharing food, the act of sitting down rather than having an elaborate meal. Mm-hmm. I always say it can be toast. It can be toast and it can be special. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to the other question. Because we hear so much about nourishing right like mm-hmm. nourishment yeah I have a feeling what you think of this but like I want to know what when you think about the word nourishment mm-hmm. for me it's about looking after people yeah looking after other people mm-hmm. so often like recently someone asked um and it was, it was it was a nourish and wellness talk and I don't really know why I was there because I'm not really <laughs> I'm not really a wellness you would be the cynical person yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I was the the person on the side but someone said, oh, what do you cook for yourself when you're on your own? And I said, I don't cook. I rummage through the fridge for leftovers or I'll maybe do an, a fried egg on something. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, my joy in cooking is not for cooking for myself. It's for cooking for someone else. Mm-hmm. It goes back to my mum coming to the table and having the bowl of soup with rice in it because yeah. she wasn't cooking for herself. Yeah. She was cooking for us. Yeah. So. There's actually a broken rice recipe in here that's based on her tableside <laughs> concoction. Yep. Anyway, I want to go back to self-publishing. Because okay. I feel like there are a lot. It's, a lot of people are coming to me lately with. Yes, it seems to be a thing, which I have never done. The great thing about self-publishing is its freedom. So you don't have commercial pressures. I was in a, in a interesting situation with my first book, Community, because it was never meant to be a like a big book. It was just written for the people of my community. So I just decided to make it pretty and put it on proper paper because why go to all the work of writing it and shooting an entire book if it's not going to look good? So I was in that situation. And then when the publishers bought the rights to it, they didn't have to do any work. They just reproduced it. But it was a really special situation because that book I think, and Neighbourhood looks very similarly, similar mm-hmm. to it graphically and editorially. That book, I think, is very special because there was no pressures from a mm-hmm. publisher. I did very unusual things, like I made the cover a soft cover, like a magazine, because as a home cook, I wanted it to be... I mean, this 
Although mm. this one I absolutely adore. This, this hardcover. Yeah. Um, but at the time it was like it was very unique to have this cover that was floppy and you could kind mm. of flick it open and I had it as very symmetrical. Like I liked to read recipes you know, like on a right-hand page. So I made all the recipes on the right-hand page. It doesn't exist like that now mm. because, you know, publishers are involved and I like it. It's great. I've evolved. But the thing about self-publishing is that you can take all these chances and just do things because you like it. And to an extent, that's what Peddler is. Mm-hmm. But what I find really nice is it resonates with so many people, mm-hmm. like just to do something from your heart because you're really passionate about these stories. I think that's when you find you surprise yourself more when you do something from the heart and then you find out wow other people really it it affects other people too Mm -hmm. that's been really incredible like when we produce peddler we don't really think about oh what's uh, what are the other magazines doing like what what is Mm -hmm. cherry bomb doing about this month like we just really go on our own Mm -hmm. path I work with a lot of new writers that some people message me and just go oh I read that article and I just loved it and I cried and it reminded me of my grandmother, and then I say to them, my response is, do you want to write for us? Yeah. And that people are, like, blown away, and I'm like, because I'm looking to give people chances, yeah. and I don't give everyone, like, I don't respond ev- to everyone like that. There's always, with Peddler, it's a very instinct. It's instinct-driven, mm-hmm. so sometimes I just like what someone has said, and and I found, like, with, there's this one girl who wrote, she's in L.A., and she wrote for us, her very first time in the childhood issue, which was the second issue, and she's written in every one since. And her writing has just improved so much. Mm. And her photography has just, you know, her photography is amazing. It was great to start with, but it's even better now. So for me, it's, I feel such, like I don't take complete credit for it, but I take, it's Mm. very nice to see someone develop like that mm-hmm. in the space of, you know, yeah. six months, nine yeah. months. Well, because so. you're giving them total, essentially total freedom to I do think, yeah, whatever people is, just need to be yeah. given a chance sometimes. Yeah. And I do try and look for young writers and young photographers who may not have had the opportunities. I mean, I think right now in, with printed magazines, it's very hard to get in with anyone. Like, mm-hmm. you know, all the big titles are down like well, Savoir only has like two two printed issues a year now or three printed issues and they're using the top photographers and the top photographers are working at very low rates just because they want to keep getting the bylines and mm-hmm. and it's very hard for younger people to actually get other than online but you know print it in print it's um yeah the availability of photography and writing has kind of devalued monetarily mm-hmm. The, the industry, however, there's so much good stuff out there. There is. It's, it's harder to sort through it. But it's harder to find it, isn't it? There is a trend in self-publishing. Do you have, do you have No Forks Given, which is a – that's a self-published book okay. that's just been released. It is becoming yeah. – and then if anyone is interested, there is a really interesting case study done by – you know the Avery Cocktail book? They did a whole breakdown, a step-by-step oh, of yeah. how they self-funded their book and how they involved the people in the making of the book, which I think is a really fun thing to do because then there's real ownership of it. Anyway, yeah. anyway. we could talk about that for <laughs> hours. Last time you were here for Neighbourhood, mm-hmm. I remember we had a conversation about how you didn't cook meat at home. Or oh, you did. I kind of did. You yeah. did. It would be like a side thing. 
You yes. still mainly vegetables. I mean, they yeah. were younger then too. Since then, they've yes. turned vegetarian. Yeah. So the kids tested every recipe because I wanted to make sure that it was somewhat friendly to a range of palates. And my kids, I've got three kids, they all have very different palates. So they all have little things that they don't like to eat and one will love and the other one will like spit it out. I, I tested everything on them and I included the things that I thought were the most, you know, palate friendly. Through testing the book, I just decided that I wasn't going to cook meat anymore. So I've like been one of those typical mums that makes three different meals or yeah. I would make a meal for myself and then I would like add sausage to the side or like mm -hmm. chicken drumstick or something, you know, that was quite typical. Or like I would spend hours tending to a a ragu, like for spaghetti bolognese. And I just decided I'm not doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. And they can eat what I eat. And this book has really allowed me to do mm -hmm. it. So I actually do use this book all the time. My oldest has turned vegetarian now. So mm -hmm. she turned pescatarian to start with. And then through her own volition has decided to be vegetarian. So she's been totally vegetarian. How before. old is she? 13? She's turning 13 yeah. in a couple of months. So my mum will, will always ask me, did you force her to be vegetarian? <laughs> so she still yeah, asks me. How does your mum take that? Like, <laughs> she doesn't like it, you know, but she's she doesn't really understand it. Mm -hmm. Now she does. I mean, she was with me a lot when I was doing my business and she would come and help me and help me chop things. And so she really, she expanded her um, mm -hmm. taste buds while she was during that phase because mm -hmm. she was eating all these spices that she would have never eat, have eaten growing up. Mm -hmm. So she's much more open to it now. Yeah, so the situation in our house is now I don't cook meat. We eat food like this every night for dinner. My boys still eat meat when they go out mm -hmm. and that's up to them. Yeah. Which I actually love. I'm very conscious of not forcing them to have my mm -hmm. lifestyle because that's what I am, but I also feel like there's a really nice balance because when they go out, they'll still order a burger and I'm completely okay with it. Mm -hmm. But at home, they're like become very good eaters and they're always kind of excited to try new things and they do want different flavors every night. So mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. just from habit and yeah. they finally got used to eating lots of different flavors. Yeah. I love your salads. Do you have some sort of breakdown of the things that you go to? Now they're kind of like a formula, I have to say, because I made so, I've made so many, I don't know how many salad recipes I've written in my life, in the hundreds, I would say, because I also write these columns for various newspapers, so everyone always wants mm -hmm. me to write salad recipes. My approach to salads is still very much a result of the salad business I ran mm -hmm. in Sydney for four years. And so when I was coming up with salads for that, I always took one vegetable, sometimes two, but always one vegetable. And I would add something bulky because mm -hmm. I was feeding people who worked, like I would be mm -hmm. taking it to workplaces. So in my mind, I'd be thinking they need something that's going to fill them up. So there would always be some sort of carb or, you know, like just a hearty element. Yeah. So that would be usually a chickpea or quinoa or Faro or Frika or, you know, mm -hmm. one of these grains. And then I would kind of take it on a journey. So mm -hmm. I would decide, am I going to go Asian with this or Middle Eastern or Mediterranean or, you know, it could be like an Indian kind of. Mm -hmm. So I would decide where I would take it and then that would determine what herbs I use, what mm -hmm. nut. I like. It is kind mm -hmm. of, it feels like a formula to me, but it's a very 
lovely formula because mm-hmm. still to this day there is nothing I'm more passionate about than a salad. Yeah. There is unlimited possibility yeah. with where a salad can go. I always think I can turn almost any meal into a salad. Yeah. So I think with vegetables you do have to work a little harder. I mean, and not harder as in it's difficult, but just you have to think about how you're cooking it to get the most flavour. So I tend to, if I'm char grilling, I take it very far because I want that charred flavour. I tend to do that a lot. Some things like a bit of raw, like fennel, for example, is something I've discovered like in my family. My kids would eat raw fennel, but they wouldn't eat cooked fennel. So we now do a lot of like raw fennel things with like citrus because they love citrus. So like just the way you cook a vegetable makes a huge difference. I cook a lot on the grill, like the barbecue. That delivers like an extra mm-hmm. smokiness. But roasting is always interesting. And adding spices to your vegetables mm-hmm. before you cook is an interesting mm-hmm. way of just adding flavour. You know what? I have to say, every time I serve salads, people are so happy. Yeah. So I think I worked this out a long time ago. Is it because my salads are really tasty, but people love it because they feel like a, like you've put effort into it. They feel like they've eaten something healthy. Mm-hmm. And it makes it makes such a difference. Like people walk away and go, I can't believe I ate just a whole table worth of sa- like vegetables. Because mm-hmm. it's quite rare that that really happens. Yeah. I'm, always, I'm always chasing flavour. For me, mm-hmm. it's like the biggest. I think as a vegetarian, you want flavour, you want texture, you want all those things. And you don't want to feel like you you have to miss out on those things just because you don't eat meat. So I'm trying to recreate all those sensory <laughs> mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. through the ingredients I have at my fingertips. Yeah. Okay. Should we do questions? So it sounds like you've accomplished a lot and you've kind of lived many lives. So can you explain like a little bit more about your career trajectory and how you think about your career? So interestingly, I never wanted to be in food. Like this has really been an accident. And I've only really been cooking since 2011. So before that, I used to work in PR um, as my day job. And then when I had kids, I was actually living in London and my daughter was born there. And I actually had this pull to go back home. I just wanted to be with my mom and I was desperate to get home. So when my daughter was only a few months old, we left London, went back to Sydney. Then I had two more babies in quick succession. So when my youngest was one, I just decided that I wanted to do something that was kind of home-based and it kind of surprised me. Like I remember like seeing what my mom did and just kind of thinking, And I think my daughter's like this with me. You know, you want to do the opposite of what Mm -hmm. your mum does. So I was, so it sort of surprised me that I wanted to be in the home. I wanted to be within my community. So I just started cooking and delivering food to the community. Like people would just, it was all very, like people think it was really high tech, but it was, people would subscribe to my email list and I would send out a, like a manual, manually typed email every Wednesday and they would email me back with what they wanted. And um, there was no apps involved. There was no, it was all very lo-fi. And when I sold out, I sold out. I wouldn't make, cause it was just me cooking and me delivering. I did everything. That idea kind of took on a life of its own. I discovered like the joy of food when you cook for someone else and when you're feeding people. So yeah, I never really had a food dream or 
this, it wasn't, none of this was really planned. So I had this business for four years where I was like literally, you know, like cycling things around. And then when community came out, things got a little bit out of control and I actually couldn't really, I was getting all these requests to deliver all over Sydney and I really wasn't interested. Like for me, keeping the business small was my, the hardest thing for me. And I actually wasn't very good at it. Like I was always, I was saying no all the time and it felt awful to say no all the time, but I was fighting to stay small when I think the world just wants big. So when my husband came home and said one day, oh, we have this opportunity to move to New York, but I told them that you won't want to go. I was like, are you insane? <laughs> this is my way out because I don't know how to grow this business. I don't, I don't think I'm a very good businesswoman actually. So, because I thought I need to open a cafe. This is the only way I can really cope with, I can't cook from home anymore. It's getting too big. So that I was telling Aaron today, that's still kind of an unrequited dream of mine is to have... <laughs> But I have a very specific model of what I want to do. So it's basically, I don't really want to run a business. I just want to cook food and pass food out a window and chat to people outside the window. <laughs> so that's what I do. So I would chat to people all day when I was delivering and it would be the longest delivery known to man. I would take like two hours <laughs> to deliver, you know, just a few salads because I would just talk, talk, talk. And some of those people are my really good friends now. A lot of them are my dear friends. So, and a lot of them like kind of reappear in the new edition of Community. So it's really nice. So Community was like, that book was me teaching myself to write recipes and teach myself a style so I really learnt all about flavour through cooking so in those days I had no repertoire I had no dishes that were my own so every week I remember this very I had a little office in my house in Sydney and I would sit for hours and hours like almost a, an entire Saturday to come up with four recipes so I would like get the the ingredient like the seasonal vegetable list from my supplier and I would choose you know it would be like a brassica and then something else you know I have to vary it up mm. and I only did that I only delivered twice a week but it would take me such a long time to work out what I was going to cook I cared so much about like down to the nut and the herb that I use I would mm -hmm. labor over that and it sounds like crazy but it was I didn't really know about flavors so I was just learning and like some were failures and some were recipes that I cooked once and I never did it again but I really did learn how to put things together through just coiling and there were like some I didn't really even own that many cookbooks at the time I think I had the like the original Artelangi book before Plenty but then I did get Plenty, and Plenty is like one of the best books ever mm -hmm. written for me, <laughs> for vegetarians. But I did learn a lot about flavours through certain books, a lot of Middle Eastern books. I was very mm -hmm. drawn to Middle Eastern flavours because it was something that was very new to me. It lends itself so well to vegetarian mm -hmm. cooking. So kind of, you know, fast forward to moving to New York, I, writ I wrote another book. Now I do, I have this studio like kind of similar to Aaron's where we do pop-ups and mm -hmm. things in New York because I just find like with events like that, you get to have more connection with people and you sit with them and you eat with them and that's kind of nice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm kind of open to anything. <laughs> What's next? Well, so you're always, always working on something. Yeah. So Peddler is like, so it's twice a year and it's something that I forget about and then I say, oh, I have three weeks to pull this together. So I usually always have decided a theme 
And luckily now I can, I have got a, like a good bunch of contributors around who are always happy to contribute. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm working on more sort of columns around. I do a couple of columns in Australia and a few here that will be starting in the next few months. And then, yeah, I'm kind of in the very early stages of working on another book. Can you tell us? It'll probably be an Asian book. Yeah. Not probably, it is an Asian <laughs> book. <laughs> but again, it's, um, it's not traditional. It's, I'm not traditional and I'm a very much a melting pot of... See, Australia mm. in itself is... I think my food is more Australian than it is Chinese, mm-hmm. if, if you know. Because Australia is such a melting pot. It's a very young country and you know, with waves of immigration, the foods have kind of, you know, taken on new importance. And so, for example, the big difference I find with New York and Australia as a whole is in New York, if you want to eat like a Chinese dish, you have to go to a Chinese restaurant. Whereas in Australia, you just go to a cafe and you kind of get, there'll be like an Asian dish on the menu like someone was looking at this book and they saw the falafel, the deconstructed falafel salad. And her, the first thing she said to me was, oh, have you been to the Middle East or have you been? Mm. And I was like, no. But And then there was another Australian woman next to me who then jumped in and said, well, that's not how we do it in <laughs> Australia. We just, the food is just everywhere. Like, so you'll go to a cafe and there'll be a Middle Eastern breakfast alongside scrambled eggs and mm-hmm you know, an Asian noodle dish alongside a spanakopita or something. It's very mixed up and kind of great. Like That's kind of the cafe culture. So Mm -hmm. the type of Asian food I do is is influenced by everything else. What I'm trying to do is democratise Asian food. So a lot of people say to me, all I really want to eat is Asian food every night, but I don't know how to cook it. And so I've heard that a lot over the years. And what I want to show people is how to actually get those flavours using what you'd get from the supermarket. Okay. So I, because I think when I say Asian grocery store, people go, oh, my God, I don't know how to shop. <laughs> I can't read the it. labels. Oh, yeah. yeah, like it kind of, and I, I don't yeah. want people to f- not eat a cuisine beca- or not know how to cook a cuisine because they're scared to go to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the factor that's stopping people from eating Asian food every night, which is something I could do. I want to change that. Thank you to Hetty McKinnon for visiting us in Seattle and to Aaron Goyaga for leading the conversation. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Family and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.